I like that new song, Jubilee. You know, that's, that's the seventh year in the history of Israel when all the debts were canceled and uh, people were set free from their, their bondage to uh, their indentured servitude. And, uh, and Jesus' seven last words on the cross, which we're going through in these seven weeks, really represents the ultimate freedom. You know, those seven words, that in a dark hour, the seven words that set us free. We're, we're looking at, um, at a, a, a concept called overture where you're, you're seeing uh, played out themes of a borrowed future. Strength for today from bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for today from bright hope of tomorrow. Looking at the book of Acts in light of Jesus' seven words on the cross. These themes that are just, that, that shatter the goblets of our known experience, of our measured experience. These themes of, of, uh, of freedom and, and of, of authority like last week. Today we're talking about transcendence itself. Transcendence. The idea that, uh, that ultimate reality is bigger than our goblets can hold. Ultimate reality is supernatural, is, is beyond what we can measure. That's transcendence. Reality ultimately transcends what we can measure. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 2. Jesus says on the cross in his second statement to the thief, as you saw Elizabeth talking about, he says to the thief, you'll, today you'll be with me in paradise. But what happens when eternity breaks into time? What happens when paradise, when heaven comes near? Well, that's what we're looking at in Acts chapter 2. God pours out his spirit in a special and powerful way. He fills his believers. He fills his church. We are living stones, and Peter says, that we're, we're a new temple, that the temple of, of the Holy Spirit is the believer, is the gathered people. And so what happens when a transcendent God breathes new life into his people. You can see this scene that's coming. It's a scene where uh, people who had been exiled, right? not all exiles returned to Jerusalem, right? In the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian exile, some of them just stayed and made a life there for generations and generations, and they learned different languages. They were distributed throughout the whole uh, known world. People who were... Um, People of Yahweh, people who uh, were Hebrews. And so they would return annually to the, the Feast of Tabernacles when they would commemorate, they would celebrate their 40 years in the desert. And so here is God redeeming history, you see? These people who were exiled, who were sent out, now coming back just so they can hear the gospel, so they can experience the power of God in Jerusalem and then return to their homes with that message. Do you ever, do you ever recognize that that's, that's, that's one way we can see God redeeming history? Well, let's take a look at the way God brings new life to us by bringing his life, his transcendent power into our lives. Acts chapter 2, selected verses. I want to remind you, we, we do have in the bulletin uh, certain verses I'm going to uh, be focusing on this morning. So uh, take a look at those, and you can take notes there. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, that is the disciples. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, are these not uh, people who are speaking, are they not Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Skip it down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. And then verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. My uh, undergrad, college, my college professor who was my advisor was Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, not the real Ebenezer Scrooge. He was a Dickens scholar, though. He loved Charles Dickens. And so, you know, Christmas Carol, you know, the, 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 he was kind of channeling Scrooge in his demeanor and his, uh, his outlook on life. One of the things he told me more than once that he was so upset about was that he had never seen a ghost like Scrooge. He had never seen a ghost. And I think he, he kind of wanted to see a ghost like Scrooge. You know, he was, he was kind of a grumpy guy, curmudgeon, kind of intimidating. I wish that I'd said this to him. I wish I'd said, why do you suppose you want to see a ghost? Not just like to prove that there is a, something more than meets the eye to ultimate reality. Not just to prove that the supernatural exists or transcendence is real. But why do you think you have the hunger, the desire? Why is that there? Why is it there? I wish I had asked him that. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He answers the question. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself, in myself, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We have hungers. 
We hunger for eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. That's King Solomon. said, God has set eternity in our hearts. What happens when your faith centers not on some polytheistic God? That, that's, that's today. And you know, I, I've discovered, this is what I've concluded. We're returning to polytheism because everybody can just sort of have the, the God the way they want it, Right? Just however you want to believe about God, just, you know, go ahead. It's just whatever, you know, it's sort of just subjective experience. But what happens when we center on the God of the universe, the God behind all things, the transcendent God? What happens when faith is centered on the God who made all things? Well, I like to put it in a very simple way. I think what I've discovered over the years is that when people center their faith on the holy God, they become a there-you-are kind of person, a there-you-are person. You know, there, there are two different kinds of people. They, they walk in the room, they say, here I am. Lucky you, lucky you, right? And then there are people who come in and they say, there you are. And in every turn of the conversation, it's there you are. And when you're talking and you're saying, they don't change the subject. And when you have a real need, they're, they're there. And when... When, um, when, when you turn to them and want to engage life on life with them, they're accessible to you. And you can trust them because they have your best interest in mind, because they will your good. A there you are person. Let's take a look at how this passage shows us. That when faith is transcendent, when, when faith is in a God who is the transcendent God. In the ultimate reality, God, we become there-you-are people in a couple of different ways. First, something happens in us for the common good, and something happens through us for the common good. You all with me? All right, so when your faith centers on the transcendent God, on the God, when eternity breaks into your world, something happens in you for the common good and through you for the common good. First, something happens in us for the common good. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3, and divided tongues as, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, but others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. So that's verse 3 and verse 13. Filled with the Spirit, and then some who were watching mocked and said, filled with new wine. I think he was talking about wild Irish rose, by the way, you know, just that new wine. The actual Greek uh, says wild Irish rose, you know, the actual translation of the Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Danker, you know, official translation of it. It says new wine, right, which means the kind of cheap wine that you want just to get drunk, right? So it's a real put down. It's like you're not even drinking good wine. You're drinking wild Irish rose, right? They're, they're like 9 a.m., and they're, they're, they're tipping it back. That's what they're saying. That's, what, that's, that's the accusation. Why? Something's happening. And Peter is saying, look, th- these, these guys aren't, they're not filled with wine. They're filled with the Spirit. And something is different about them. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Now, at this point, he's not talking about gifts of the Spirit. He's not talking about tongues or other gifts. He's talking about fruit. What's fruit? From Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. They're exhibiting a sense of joy, a sense of peace. They have 
all things together in one place. They're, 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 they're exhibiting a, a sense of community, a sense of patience with one another, a sense of love, a sense of well-being for each other. They're spil- filled with the Spirit. You say, well, is that really transcendent? I mean, they're, they're nice. They're, they're, they're nicer than they were yesterday. No, they're changing. They're changing. Some of you all know just how powerful that is because you're trying to change. Or you've got somebody in your household that needs to change. Or you've got a boss that really needs to change. Or, 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 or somebody who's a really good friend of yours who, who's trying to change, but they just they keep getting stuck and stuck and stuck. And you think, What's, it's going to be a miracle for that person to change. I mean, John Mayer coins it. He says, I'm, I'm still waiting, waiting on the world to change, right? And we understand how powerful it is when people actually change. Newton's second law talks about inertia, right? Inertia. Things tend to stay right where they are or stay in the motion or stay in the path they're in until something act outside of them acts on them. Then it's changed. Well, that applies to us as well. You know, I think about this a lot in terms of just our church and its trajectory and our patterns and and our habits and all of that. If you want to do something new in a church, you know, uh, there are probably about 2.6% of the people who are ready for that. <laughs> Which one of you is it? All right. And then there's like half of the bell curve that are like, well, you know, if things kind of get going in that direction, then maybe I'll give it a try. And then the other half is like, well, that first half went, so I guess I'll go to... And then there are the other folks that, God love them. I just absolutely love them. They're like, no, never, ever. Uh-uh. Like the seven last words of a dying church. You heard this, right? We've never done it that way before, right? All right. Change is supernatural. It really is. I mean, it's a powerful thing to see people change. Did you know that the railroad, you know, the, the gauge of the railroad uh, between the tracks, the four feet, Eight and a half inches. That's a weird sum, isn't it? What, what, did you know that that goes back to the breadth of the behind of a horse, you know? Because it really, if you go all the way back, if you trace it back, you can see that, that rails were put along the ruts of, of Roman chariots, okay? I mean, change is difficult for us. We get in that kind of a rut. As a matter of fact, I, I read that um, that. The, the size of the propulsion rockets of the Columbia, the original, you know, the first uh, uh, space shuttle, had to be sized down because of the gauge of the railroad tracks and the cars that it would be transported on, right? So even space travel dates all the way back to the ruts of a, you know, of a Roman chariot and the, and the, the widths of the behind of a horse. Change is supernatural especially the kind of change that produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. Why was the church growing so explosively? They saw the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives. Jesus said, they will know you're following me. They will know you're following the living God. Because of what? Tongues of fire? Because of your love for one another. It's powerful. It's powerful to see somebody 
become that kind of there-you-are person. But let's not dismiss. Let's not dismiss what else is going on in this passage. There's something very unique happening here. God is doing something not only in the believer, but doing something through the believer. And continues to do, work his his will and his way through us, right? Not just in us for the common good, but through us for the common good. The second way that we know that, that faith is really centered on the transcendent God. He's doing something through us. And that's where we're, we get to the whole business of gifts, especially in this passage, charismatic gifts. You can see uh, verses 5 and 6. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, I had mentioned at the top of this whole thing that people were coming together for this Feast of Tabernacles, and it wasn't an accident. God, you know, sort of God in his providence brought that about, and people were able to hear the gospel, what had happened in their own native tongue. They understood it, in other words. They understood what was being said. It made sense to them. It was comprehensible to them. It wasn't just, now the, the word for this is glossolalia, and some of this uh, is a little confusing because Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians because there was sort of this other um, uh, prayer language that was being spoken of, and, and a lot of times that's what we think of when we think of speaking in tongues. What's happening in Acts is something unique, something unique. They're hearing the gospel in their own language. Now, there, there are two excesses when it comes to this consideration of these kinds of gifts, all right? There are two excesses, emotionalism and rationalism. Let's take a look. First, emotionalism. Uh, some years ago, I heard somebody make this claim. God told me that this is the way to go. This is the way to go. God told me. In the middle of the night, he woke me up, and I knew this is the way to go. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. This is what it is. And not a week later, maybe 10 days later, he quietly went in another direction. Oh, well, what happened to the whole declaration of the authority of, the, of God's speaking to you in the middle of the night? What happened to that? Well, I mean, he was caught up in the moment, I guess. What, 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 what Peter is saying here, he's giving a speech, and there are like seven or eight speeches in, in the book of Acts that are really important. This is the first one. So Peter is giving a speech, and he's saying, what, he's explaining what is happening here is not that people are drunk, but it fulfills something. So he points to Scripture, and there's the authority. We talked the first week, and that's why I started this first whole, whole thing off in, uh, on authority. Where is your authority? Where is the authority? It's in the Word of God. And Peter says, this fulfills what, what was prophesied in, you know, by the prophet Joel, that in the latter days that, 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 that God will pour out his spirit and, and prophetic and, and, and prophetic powers will be exhibited uh, during an apostolic age when people are able to, uh, to, to recall uh, all that was going on. The Holy Spirit directs the, 
the, the, the church to come together, this explosive growth that nobody can explain after everybody was sort of cowering in the corner, not even wanting to have anything to do with Jesus. And then, and then the, the scriptures come together under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, sometimes we, we sort of get caught up in the moment and we go a little too far. Paul addresses this in 1 first, first Corinthians. And this is what was happening. They were sort of using gifts in the way that fruit needs to, to be used. See, gifts are, are for other people, for the common good. Right? When something is happening in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, people can see it, and it's happening. It's your character, and you're growing, and it's, it's beneficial to you and to other people. Gifts are to be directed outwards, but what was happening in, in the Corinthian church was people were using gifts uh, in a sensational and emotional way, emotionalism. They were using it. They were using it in ways that drew attention to themselves and, uh, and just created a whole lot of disorder. So Here's what Paul says. He says, if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, what are you? A gong, clanging gong or a banging cymbal. I'm just making a lot of noise, people. Pay attention to me. Bang, 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 a bang. I mean, it's just, it's just for, the, for the noise that it makes, for the experience that we're having. For the, the tingly sensations that you might have, you know, in the moment, in the moment. Now, I'm not dismissing or discounting that, that those kinds of experiences, are, that warm fuzzies on Sunday morning are important. I mean, I hope you get all the warm fuzzies we can give you this morning. You know, I want you to have warm fuzzies. But when you make it about that, you know, you think of that, that, um, that song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, right? And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And we even have to write songs that hold us to account, that we make it about ourselves. And that's our problem, isn't it? That's our problem. We, 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 we even take something supernatural and something powerful and something unexplainable, and we center it on people again. Well, that's back to the same problem that the world has. Polytheism. It's just sort of your own subjective view of God. 3 a.m., God told me we're going this way. Oh, really? Okay, well, how do I know that that's from God? Well, I said it was. Oh, okay. Right? I mean, that's what I want to do. It's like, show me the scripture. Where's the scripture? Where's your basis? Where's your authority? Is it in you? Really? Okay. Well, I've been to the swimming area. I mean, seminary. And I, and I don't try to put that kind of authority on me. I put it to the scriptures. The scriptures. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians over and over again. Throughout verse 14, 1 Corinthians, he's saying, look, if, if there is, if somebody has some sort of supernatural uh, display or, or a prayer language, don't create confusion. Don't create chaos in the church. This is where Presbyterians sort of like, yeah, see, this is our guy. This is our chapter. Do things decently and in order, right? I mean, that's like the Presbyterian joke. Everything's done decently and in order. And that's our second problem. Now, sometimes we, we, are, we, we, we focus on the outcome of being in the Spirit, and we're sort of trying to get that kind of experience for ourselves rather than thinking of gifts as for the common good. But sometimes... We just want everything down to a very neat and orderly and manageable size. 
right? We're poker-faced. Everything's decently and in order. You know, it, it reminds me of when, when, when I, I remember when my parents moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, from, from Durham, and I remember that the, 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 the properties were a lot farther apart, and, um, and maybe it was just that people just had the, everybody had the door clicker, you know, for the garage door. And I remember seeing people drive into their garage, and before the taillights were off, the garage door was coming down. I thought, wow, that's, yeah, you're not going to get to know your neighbors in this neighborhood, right? Uh, that's, that's sometimes how rationalism feels. Hyper-reformed spirituality is very, very rational. And, and everything has to be just measured, and, and everything has to be decently and in order, and everything has to be all within the realm where the goblets don't shatter. Boy, I mean, if we get, you know, when Bree was singing that song, I was wishing that we had a crystal goblet out here. I would have I loved for that goblet just to shatter. I mean, that was an awesome new uh, jubilee. What a great song. We should do that again next week. And we should all sing it. And maybe even, maybe even anatomically try to get our hands out of our pockets. You know what I mean? Because Presbyterians really have trouble with their hands. They just don't go above their waist. It's really difficult for us. It must be a Northern European thing. It's like, eh, I just, the fro- frozen joints on Sunday. My joints just freeze up on Sunday. I don't know what it is. At the football game, though, it's like, whoa, baby, yeah, whoa. But when you're praising a living God, See the two directions we can go? You can go to where it's all about your personal and subjective experience. Where did God go? And you can go to where it's all about, mm, you know, I'm just, you know, this is, I just don't want to take any risks here. And you know what? I, emotion is not, you know, part of this whole game. And you can hide. And where did God go? You know, I, I remember, I, I remember the first time I stood under the St. Louis Arch and I was marveling at that feat of engineering. 1904, World's Fair. 1904, that's when they built the St. Louis Arch. I mean, I stuck my camera on it and just, I mean, you can stick your camera on it and take a picture and the whole thing is, I mean, it's just incredible. Just think about that. I was standing under it and for, for whatever reason, I just started hearing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It was just like something. I was just trying to capture the moment of wonder and awe that human beings are able to do such an amazing thing. Come together and build something so inspired, inspiring. Uh, we can't operate in such a way that everything's so measurable that we lose our sense of inspiration. And that's just engineering. That's just a building. You see, we worship the living God for the common good. You know, there's, there's this closing part of this whole passage where it says, says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And God added to their number those who were being saved. 
You know, we have trends in the church, and one of the trends for a long time was do everything so excellent, right? This was sort of a coming out of the, after the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was just sort of like uh, everything had to be sort of done with such precision and polish and excellence. And then came along, you know, sort of the Gen Xers and the millennial generations, and they were like, where's the authenticity, right? I think one of the reasons... And this is a timeless thing, really. I think one of the reasons why there was such explosive growth in the church, and one of the reasons, and the main reason why people come and join this church right now, is that people see our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And they see people taking their gifts and directing them outward. They're directing them for the common good. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the table set before us. It's a table of communion. We commune together and with you. It's not a religious table except in the sense that it reties us to you. It's a table of relationship. And so we pray now that you would set aside these common elements from their everyday use to a sacred purpose, that as we receive this bread and drink from this cup, we might experience a magnificent exchange of our sin for your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.